Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Seabrow, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. The definitive rap is proud to be the official podcast of vinnews.com. In the last 60 days, in what was supposed to be a return to normalcy and the saving of the soul of our nation, we have witnessed utter chaos from our southern border, the spike in oil and gas prices, cancel culture, and fear amongst our Middle East allies about which direction the Biden administration will turn. On one side, we hear no change in our support for Israel, even as the Biden team continues to recruit a record number of anti-Semitic cabinet members and promises to reestablish relations with the Palestinian Authority. We were told no tricks when it comes to the Iran nuclear deal, only to find out that the U.S. was involved in some shady deals to have South Korea pay $1 billion to Iran to release a ship held captive. We were told that the Biden administration was 100% opposed to the BDS movement, only now to hear that ActBlue, a Democrat-linked donation portal, has been used by the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel, a story broken by the Washington Free Beacon. Columnist Adam Credo, whom Bela will introduce shortly, and who is an expert on all matters related to foreign policy, wrote about this apparent violation, and is here to talk about what the Free Beacon has exposed and how the GOP is bringing it to light, as well as other recent columns exposing the backroom deals between the Biden administration and Iran. I know, Bela, you had a few comments as well before introducing Adam. Yes, thank you, Alan. One of the issues we are going to be talking about today is the Act Blue Charity. And for our audience tuning in who may not be familiar with it, Act Blue was established in 2004 by two young men, men, Matt Burgelis and Ben Ron, as a nonprofit organization that was allegedly not intended to be run by any official Democratic Party. Yet it enables Democratic candidates and other left-leaning nonprofit organizations to raise money from private donors on the Internet. It's a pretty successful tool, and in fact, by 2006, just two years after its inception, Act Blue raised $17 million for Democratic candidates. And before long, what started as a platform for national candidates eventually expanded to help state and local candidates raise money, too. So on the outset, one might say, okay, so what's the problem with a grassroots organization trying to raise money for campaigns? Campaigns are certainly quite costly. However, Act Blue has issues connected to multiple terror organizations. And reporting on that is our esteemed guest, Adam Credo. Adam Credo is a senior writer reporting on national security and foreign policy matters for the Washington Free Beacon, an award-winning political reporter who has broken news from across the globe. Credo's work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Weekly Standard, Commentary Magazine, 
The Drudge Report, and The Jerusalem Post, among many others. Adam, welcome to The Definitive Wrap. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You are the one to break the story about Act Blue and how there is now an investigation being demanded. Uh, please share with us and our audience what is going on with an organization intended to help candidates in their campaigns and how this discovery came to light in the first place. Sure, um, I'd be happy to. So as you guys mentioned, um, Act Blue facilitates donations for a whole host of uh, dem- democratic-aligned organizations, uh, among others, but most prominently, uh, we could mention the Black Lives Movement and a whole host of democratic politicians. Among one of the organizations it's um, um, enabling donations for, which I think is safe to say, is a umbrella organization that works in the BDS movement, which we know works to boycott Israel. Um, They do it through a whole host of different venues, but most significantly, one of their venues is the academic movement. Academia has been very kind to the BDS movement and has supported it for quite a long time. The uh, problem with this is that at its inception, the BDS movement um, came to be through work with actual terror organizations, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, among others, that uh, fund and arm militants that launch terror strikes on uh, the state of Israel. So you can imagine it's problematic. Now, when I first reported on it, and I think this is interesting, uh, there was already an organization, the Zachary Legal Institute, that had petitioned that blue. They wrote them a letter to their CEO, their leadership, and informed them of what was going on. They laid it out quite clearly, actually. Here's the group you're funding, and here's the connections, and they laid it out step by step. Um, Act Blue has said nothing. I've reached out to them multiple times for comment, and uh, now Congress has their hands on it. Um, uh, a lawmaker in the House has actually petitioned the Departments of Justice and Treasury, which handle sanctions, uh, to probe this and to say, look, could they be violating U.S. anti-terrorism laws, which prohibit, by the way, material support to terror organizations, right? So it's very broad in the way the law is uh, shaped there. And they want to know whether um, Act Blue could actually be investigated for facilitating these donations. They think there's a pretty compelling argument that it, it could be fair to do. And I want to ask you, the Washington Free Beacon always seems to be exposing stories. Um, And my first question is just basically, how is it that your publication is always, you know, on the cusp of breaking? I mean, and these are big stories, too. This is not, you know, what happened to Buckingham Palace. Mm -hmm. This is real stuff. And then, you know, with that, I have a follow up question. Um, in your articles, it refers to, you know, a, a lone Republican who is, you know, uh, who wrote a letter to somebody. In the case of uh, the billion dollars with uh, South Korea and Iran, the, there's a representative, um, Brian Steele or Staff from Wisconsin. So my first question is, how were you guys breaking these stories? And why is it only like one lone Republican as opposed to this becoming a scandal where Kevin McCarthy is calling a press conference with 30, 40 Republicans, yeah. even bipartisan support behind him? Well, they're they're both they're both good questions. Um, on on the first question, look, the Free Beacon, and I, I've been there since the beginning. I'm one of the um, longest um, 
reporters at that publication. And I come from newspapers. I'm almost, uh, even though I'm still relatively young, I'm almost a dinosaur in Washington, D.C., because I do something that uh, one, conservative news outlets often don't do. And uh, now we see mainstream outlets more often, and that is reporting. Um, what I mean by that is uh, source-to-source relationships, getting information. Um, I, I, I don't think that uh, the conservative world, the conservative media world, has put an emphasis on that. The Free Beacon really is um, alone in that orbit as a publication that is focused primarily and foremost on reporting. Uh, you can see that in the people we hire, there's an emphasis on not just breaking news, but actually digging into stories. Uh, we're not as concerned about what your opinion might be. We're concerned about what the facts are. And uh, that's an emphasis that not a lot of publicans, uh, not a lot of publications um, look at these days. I think there's a, a lot of focus on opinion generally and opinions. Good. Um, you know, it's, I find it interesting. I, I read it, but uh, that reporting is very much a lost art. And um, I, I can tell you just from, I've been at the state department now almost 10 years covering um, that building. And there are not a lot of reporters left, especially of, um, uh, you know, when you get to the younger ages that really actually know how to report what goes into it, how you build stories, how you keep them based in facts, those kinds of things. So uh, that that's my my 50,000 foot answer on that. Right. There's a lot of uh, other issues, though. Um, on your second question, look, I I think you're right. Um, but sadly, a lot of lawmakers are just not paying attention to foreign affairs issues. Um, I do my best to to keep a focus on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the lawmakers that orbit there. Uh, they tend to be much more tuned to foreign policy matters. But, uh, you know, th- this is a difficult thing, particularly on my beat. And I've I've said it for years. The foreign policy beat is is almost like forcing the reader to take their medicine. Uh, nobody really wants to take a look at what's happening outside of the world. It's often boring, but uh, it means quite a bit. It's easier to focus on domestic issues and the partisan fights and certainly what the television news shows you. So I think this is why you don't necessarily see uh, as many lawmakers attuned to the foreign affairs stuff. It's much easier for them to get on TV or create a ruckus focusing on those domestic issues here at home. Adam, I love your style and writing, and I, and I especially respect your investigative approach. You wrote a piece on the House Financial Service Committee pressing the Biden administration about facilitating a $1 billion ransom payment yep. for the release of a South Korean oil tanker that Tehran has been holding hostage. $1 billion. Why? What was in it for the Biden administration to do that? And what is the U.S. role in waiving terrorism sanctions on Iran so that South Korea could complete a multi-billion dollar payment? Yeah. So uh, South Korea has about seven billion in Iranian funds locked up. This is money that was paid to them for oil. Uh, Iran's oil trade still to this day is heavily sanctioned. A large part of that was done by the Trump administration, but it certainly started before it. Uh, Iran has been heavily sanctioned for quite some time. I mean, we're going all the way back to uh, the Bush years and even before when we look at that issue. But what's in it for Biden? It's it's a good question. You have to fundamentally try to get into their their headspace and the way the State Department and the White House National Security Council are operating now. Right. There is a desire um, explicit and also 
that they haven't really gotten into publicly to negotiate with Iran, right? So this is about opening up negotiations. The Iranians have been an adamant for years and years, and this is why there wasn't much movement with the Trump administration, that sanctions must be waived. They must get some level of sanctions relief until they come back to the bargaining table. The Trump administration said that Fundamentally, this is not the way we negotiate. First, you stop terrorism. Uh, you let hostages go. You roll back your nuclear program, which, by the way, has been charging forward in terms of Iran's uranium enrichment. They've installed advanced centrifuges. These are the machines that spin uranium and enrich it to levels needed to fuel a nuclear weapon. Uh, the Trump administration made these demands. The Biden administration takes a fundamentally opposite approach, right? Very similar to that of the Obama administration when they were negotiating this Iran deal that was rolling back sanctions beforehand, giving into Iranian concessions beforehand. And I think we're really seeing the early signs of this when we look at the deal with Korea. Now, um, Secretary of State Blinken has said that they did not um, do any kind of backroom dealing to free up this money. But I find that very difficult to believe. And I expect to see Congress investigate this more. And I'll tell you why I have that suspicion. Um, there's no way this money is moving back to Tehran unless the United States okays it. The financial mechanisms are just not in place for that to happen. Um, sanctions on some level would have to be rolled back for an international bank to say, we'll let this money move, right? There's no way they're letting that money move without the U.S. letting them know there won't be penalties to pay. But Congress has not been consulted. That's disturbing and concerning. Um, it's also part of a pattern that goes back to the Obama administration. And the reason I mention them so much is uh, President Biden was so prominent in that administration and certainly the deals they did with Tehran, Um when they were working that in 2015 and forward, uh, this is very much the same playbook. Look, a lot of the same people are working at the State Department. A lot of the same people are working at the White House National Security Council. So naturally, you will see the same playbook used. They did not consult Congress. There was un only one rather menial vote on it. And it was also interesting because at that time, a lot of their Democrats voted against um, this symbolic vote on the Iran deal. So I think it showed you a lot of the, the unity. People like to say that only Republicans oppose going back into the Iran deal. Well, that's not really the case. If we look back into recent history, Democrats, particularly those engaged on the foreign affairs um, committees opposed it too for the same reasons that Republicans do. They didn't want to see sanctions rolled back. They didn't want to see Iran get access to billions of dollars in cash windfalls. And by the way, what did they spend that on anyway? Uh, everything they're doing in Yemen, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, they're funding all of these wars through the sanctions relief that was enacted when the deal right. was first put into place. Right. So essentially, they're looking for part two of that. You know what I find mind-boggling is that one day there can be a major, major news, news story, and six months later is forgotten. An example, in 2018, major news story, Israel had somebody in Iran, and they captured all those documents and all yeah. those files showing the Iran nuclear program. Yeah. And that's, that's 2018, so now we're two, two and a half years past that. But that alone could be the deal breaker, just kind of reminder to Jen Psaki or whenever it comes up in a press conference. Um, remember this? Remember what happened here? So to me, there's just so much evidence 
to put a kibosh on any type of talks about maybe, well, maybe this time we'll make a better deal or a stronger deal. How do they just forget or how does a real news story just get dismissed or forgotten about as if it's nothing more than just nice window dressing for that day? Yeah, it, it's a great question. Look, I, I think many of these folks put on blinders in in many ways, and they ignore evidence that doesn't necessarily support what they want to do. Uh, this was always on the ideological um, angle of it, the fallacy with the Obama nuclear deal that negotiating with Iran, um, treating it like an actual nation and bringing it into the community of nations would moderate their behavior. We've now had several years of anecdotal and uh, otherwise evidence to see what actually happens when you do that with Iran. The money was not spent helping the people. The people are protesting in the streets because they can't afford basic necessities, right? Um, Iran has not moderated its behavior since entering into that nuclear agreement. In fact, they continued nuke work all along. Um, in fact, they did not go along with the inspections regime that was supposed to be put in place, right? They didn't actually consent to inspections at their military sites. And when you mentioned the, um, the nuclear file seized by the Israelis, it showed exactly that, that Iran continued on this march to a nuclear weapon. And in fact, that they never stopped. And that's why they're so close to a weapon today, it's because that infrastructure was still in place. The nuclear deal never dismantled it. It maybe put them at a lower threshold, but they always had all of the infrastructure in place. That is the centrifuges, that is the military complexes that that, um, house the nuclear program. And I think that's what Israel told the world. But look, necessarily to negotiate with Iran again, this administration has to ignore that. If they were to consider this information, they would probably find themselves at a similar place that the Trump administration was at. um, And certainly that former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was at, where he said, look, here's what we need going in. You end this nuclear buildup. You release the hostages. You stop with ballistic missiles. um, You stop spending cash on terrorism. I think the administration that's in there now would find themselves pushing for this if they didn't kind of conveniently ignore all that other information. Adam, there is much uh, scrutiny over Biden's nominees uh, from Samantha Powers to uh, to head the United States Agency for International Development to the new senior advisor who has close ties to Iran to other anti-Israel Iran appeasers. Why these nominees? Look, I, I think it fits with their worldview. Um, you're right. It, it is concerning to see individuals in high level positions that have uh, let's see, advocated in favor of the BDS movement, the boycott movement uh, that works against Israel. But again, this is very much part of the the organizations that these people come up in, the Democrat-aligned organizations. Look, uh, the Democratic Party, by and large, has embraced BDS um, quite significantly over the last several, several years. I mean, I remember being at Lordy, probably the 2012 convention, Democratic convention, I think it was in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, then. And this was the one where they removed uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital from the platform. So really, you saw these things coming. But um, for the younger folks that are now being appointed to the State Department, to the White House National Security Council, this is what they're bred and this is where they come from. So it's not terribly surprising. I think it bodes well for Israel policy. I mean, look. I I think this administration would have a very difficult time um, 
removing um, the U.S. embassy from Jerusalem. Look, that's something that just is going to stay. And it's fascinating because people like Secretary of State Blinken, those from an older generation, they actually support these moves. It tends to be the younger folks that are more radical in their approach that oppose it. Um, What could we see, though, when you have folks like this in these roles at State Department, and we've seen it before in past administrations, things like holding up money that might go to Israel for security needs, joint security projects. This is where they start to um, do these things. And also you could probably see quite a bit of um, pushback on recognizing the Golan Heights, the area in the north of Israel, right? That's right up along the border area. there, a very key security um, area. You could see them saying that, look, we don't think this is Israeli territory. And I I think that would probably do quite a bit of harm to the traditionally close U.S.-Israel relationship if we see that. But don't be surprised. (laughs) Nothing surprises me. (laughs) Adam, I want to ask you a question about you. Because again, you're a great writer. You break great stories. And again, I think that a lot of people do care about foreign policy as long as they can understand it. I mean, some of the best movies and thrillers are about the bad guys, whether they're from the Middle East or people are fascinated by the Israeli Secret Service. And your news is very, you know, um, to me, it's it's earth shattering. So here's my question. When you break something, in your mind, is it like, holy, you know what? I got to run to Congress with this. Um, What is your process to involve members of Congress with what you've exposed with, with, with which I believe in you, your mind is, Oh my God, I got a great story here. Yeah. I think there's a level that look, ideally you try to get things traction where you can. Social media has been a godsend in that, but social media has also been a curse in many ways. Um, I, I still am of the mind that, the byline shouldn't matter so much, uh, but that's not really the news industry anymore, right? right? Everybody's a personality. Everybody has something to say. I don't really, it's not my style. I don't really come from that school of thought. But uh, yeah, you definitely, on a story that's important where you say, look, there's something more here. Often you, you as the reporter, do need help and Congress can be critical in that way. But I, I've been lucky that I'm at least known to people in town. So when I break a story, I know that the State Department will see it. And that's good. I want the State right. Department to see it because I work there primarily. And I do know um, offices on the on the Hill that follow foreign policy are likely to see it. So often they'll reach out to me for further information. What, you know, what do you have here? Obviously, I would never disclose a source or that kind of thing. But informationally, I'm more than willing to help them with that. And that can that can sometimes also push a story forward. Adam. The big question is, what else could be going on between the Biden administration and Iran that we don't know about? I'm asking because at what point do we trust that all is in the up and up? Yeah, look, it's difficult to trust that all is on the up and up. And I think you made a good point earlier when you noted that Congress really has not been briefed so much on what's happening. And again, this is a similar tactic to um, the Obama administration, keeping Congress in the dark. I'm not even sure they've um, briefed on the Iran thing, specifically uh, Democratic members, or at least not. I've, I've not heard of this. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken was on the Hill last week. He got asked about the Iran stuff, but we've not heard from U.S.-Iran envoy Robert Malley, right? He's not really communicated with anybody. Um, I wrote a story about uh, one of the first things uh, Malley did when he got into office was call China. 
it's interesting. Uh, we only found out about it because the Chinese foreign ministry noted it in a statement that I actually found it was flagged for me from a source. And I brought it to the State Department. I said, is this true? And they wouldn't say anything. They wouldn't even confirm that the talks had taken place. But obviously they had um, lawmakers found out and began to investigate it. Um, and actually wrote a letter to the State Department, at which point they were forced to acknowledge that, yes, he did talk to China about getting back into the Iran deal, which I think is pretty major. And um, these discussions came before Mali ever has spoken to Congress and still has yet to speak to Congress. So I think there are legitimate concerns that they're moving forward with this, despite any opposition on the Hill, um, particularly from Republicans. But I would I would imagine probably from Democrats, too, that they'll move forward with it. And look, this is it's their prerogative. They control diplomacy right now. And well, for the next four years, there's very little members of Congress can do. But I do think it's legitimate for them to say, look, we we have a responsibility to perform oversight on this. And they do. You know, I want to ask you, I I know this show is very pro-Israel. I know the Washington Free Beacon is been very very supportive of, of israel yeah. there's an organization that you know called palestinian media watch mm-hmm. they monitor everything that comes out of the palestinian you know territories and to me with what they present that should be enough to end any discussions there's no you know my side their side and something in the middle they are clearly agenda driven to wipe israel off the map their leaders say that oslo was a ruse all the 1967 border agreement is a ruse. All of Israel has occupied Palestine. And I keep asking this question, and I, I never like the answer I get. With all of the evidence there, how is this not like the end of the discussion? I mean, the, you, you can't go to the State Department, show them what just came out, and have them say, you know, pit. You know, we don't care about that. So, you know, I get answers like, well, you know, they, you know Congress, they're busy with other things. The Middle East has been dominant. I mean, it, it becomes almost a cause in, almost, in very many campaigns. How does what they present not get taken more seriously by the State Department and the powers that be in, in Washington? Yeah, I, I think for the State Department, a large portion of it is institutional. The State Department has never particularly been a friend of Israel, um, despite the administration that's in, in place. And uh, remember that... Uh, when administrations come and go, the State Department does not come and go. Right. State Department continues on. It's mostly the same people aside from political appointees that are kind of switched and stacked and moved around. And certainly the secretary as well at the top of that organization. Um, and the State Department, again, has not been a particular fan of Israel throughout its um, its long history. That being said, look, I, I think that the bureaus that deal with um, issues like you're talking about, um, I, I feel like you're getting an aid, the resumption of aid money to the Palestinian Authority. Part of it. it. Yeah. yeah, despite it um, continuing to um, fund this pay to slave program where they take care of terrorists and their families. And um, there's pretty clear evidence that at least a portion of U.S. taxpayer aid in the past has been spent. Uh, by the Palestinian government caring for convicted terrorists and their and their families, which is a problem, um, they tend to disregard this. They um, they have the view that the U.S. needs to be an honest broker. The problem is that honest broker um, over the years, in terms of the Israel Palestine debate, apologies, um, has really turned into 
ignoring Palestinian incitement, ignoring Palestinian support for terrorism, right? Uh, I, I think that's often the the view you see from the State Department. In terms of an issue like aid money resuming, I expect to see that happen relatively soon from the Biden administration and the State Department. They've already indicated that they want to. Uh, the challenge that I look at, and, and I think this is a good question to explore with folks, is um, how do they resume aid without violating the law? We have a law called the Teller Force Act now right. on the books, and that literally prohibits the federal government from sending aid money to the Palestinian government until it stops paying for terrorists and their families. The State Department has yet to explain that. I doubt they ever will actually explain that. I think they'll just resume money anyway, whether it's through the UN or USAID or any other way that they can kind of skirt that. Um, And in terms of Israel policy, I think that you should expect the State Department to go back to business as usual. It's not going to be the historic things that we saw and that were very much driven by uh, Mike Pompeo at the State Department going to the Golan Heights, recognizing Jerusalem. This was all the secretary really saying to the institution, I'm not doing business this way. But sadly, he's not there anymore. and Things have really very much gone back. We are out of time. Thank you, Adam, for joining us today on The Definitive Wrap. You are certainly an icon in your field. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you to our audience. Your parents are shepping nachas from you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to our audience for tuning into our shows. We express much appreciation to vinnews.com for The Definitive Wrap being their official podcast. Thank you so much again, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.